You're listening to a sermon from Harvest Bible Chapel, Niagara. We believe in unapologetic preaching, unashamed adoration of Jesus, unceasing prayer, unafraid witness, and uncommon community. If you have yet to do so, we would love to have you join us for worship in God's Word on Sunday mornings. For more information, visit us online at harvestniagara.ca. Thanks for listening. Turn through your Bibles this morning to Judges chapter 19. We're going to be looking at the last three chapters of Judges today. Judges chapter 19 uh, to 21. And finishing up our series today on uh, broken heroes, pointing us to the one true hero, Jesus Christ. That's the whole point of Judges. They're pointing us ultimately to the only one that can truly satisfy our souls and truly rescue us once and for all, and that is Jesus Christ. And so turn with me to Judges chapter 19 to 21. If you don't have a Bible, maybe slip your hand up and I shall be happy to give you a copy of God's Word. Uh, We're going to really hit some of these chapters fast and furious today, so we're not going to hit all the context and all the text, but I encourage you to read them uh, at home today. But there's some important lessons here that we need to glean from in our lives as believers. Uh, Here's some common questions that I've heard as a pastor over the years that maybe they even resonate with your soul today. Here's the first one. Why should I bother following God? Does following God... And his word really make a difference in my life? These come from both inside and outside the church, believe it or not. Here's another one. Does God really care about how I live my life? Or is all this stuff just man-made rules? They're really important questions for us that need to be settled in our hearts. And quite honestly, they're answered very clearly in Judges chapter 19 uh, to 21. If you remember from last week, we were tracking with the judges. And the final final five chapters of Judges are, are a picture of where Israel re- really was at as a nation in the times of these judges. These judges weren't given an easy task to lead a people who were spiritually spiraling into the abyss. As we learned last week. The judges had a difficult task of leading these people who weren't just aspiring to the spiritual abyss. They were, they were in a clear out, head over keister downfall over the, the, the miry, in a moral downfall down to the bottom of the moral pit. Israel was completely abandoned God. They spiritually had nothing to do with God at this point, and, and they were at the bottom of morality. And so in come the judges, rescuing them constantly. But yet these final five chapters just show us how far down the Israelite nation truly fell. It's not just a lesson today on how bad Israel was. It's really a a warning alarm for us today as we look at our own lives and look at our culture in 2019, reminding ourselves of this constantly. We choose to take a pass on God, and here's where we will end up. Not just may end up, we will end up. And so let that serve as an introduction for you today. Let's just dive into chapter 19, verse 1. Let me summarize each chapter with one sentence, and then we'll apply this to our own hearts and our own culture today. Here's the first sentence you can write in your notes. Leave God out, debauchery overrides. Leave God out, debauchery overrides. Look at the subtitle in chapter 19, verse, the subtitle of chapter 19, a Levite and his concubine. That should right away be like, ding, 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 there's something wrong here. Levites were priests, we understand that, and concubines in God's time were female servants received to extend, um, expand the family lines or to help the owner have more family offspring. And concubines were seen as a second-class wife, almost like a modern-day sex slave. 
And so Levite and concubine just shouldn't be in the same sentence. And yet, in those days, it says, when there was no king in Israel, in other words, there was no, no one to oversee the spiritual aspect or the moral aspect of Israel, a certain Levite was sojourning in the remote parts of the hill country of Ephraim. And so here's a Levite again, typifying the spiritual condition of Israel, just wandering around. Notice he's going the opposite direction of where the Levite went in the previous uh, context of Micah. Levite then was coming from, from Bethlehem to Ephraim. Now they're going the, the, the other way, and there's no reason for him to go there. He's just sort of wandering around. And, and this Levite would know God's prescription for marriage, being a husband and a wife for life. In fact, Leviticus chapter 21 uh, points out that there's even, stricter, there's even stricter regulations around Levites marrying because they were to be holy and set apart for the Lord. And all this stuff meant absolutely nothing to this Levite. He was like New Hampshire, live free or die. He was going after it. And so we see here that the concubine leaves him. She was unfaithful to him. And this is also, even though she was a second-class wife, this is also uh, not to happen in this time. Uh, definitely uh, disgrace to the family, possibly even death for her. But she ran away back to her father's house at Bethlehem in Judah. So now we know why he was going there. He was going to find his concubine. And she went back to daddy's house, meaning she was probably very young and raising some more questions in her mind about what's going on here. And so make a long story short, this priest gets some gifts, goes back to woo back his concubine four months later. What he's doing that four months, I don't know, but he's going back to get his, his wife. He gets to her father's house, and her father welcomes him in, and as is the custom of Middle Eastern, Middle Eastern culture, hospitality is overwhelming, and so he invites him in. He's like, why don't you stay with me? Why don't you eat? And uh, five days, he convinced him, stay and eat, stay and eat, stay and eat. His hospitality was so overwhelming. It's important to note, so overwhelming. This wasn't excessive, by the way. This is what the culture was. By day six, he's, the Levite's like, forget it, I'm out of here. I can't take your hospitality anymore. It's too much. So he sets off for Jerusalem and ends up in a place called uh, Gibeah. Gibeah, he gets there, and he walks into the town square expecting people to meet him there. To, this is in the land of Benjamin. To meet him there, to take him in the hospitality way, and no one takes him in. This is typifying the reality of what was going on there. This is not normal. In our day and age, we're like, yeah, I get it. No one wanted to take this stranger in, but... In this day and age, it wasn't normal. So what's this guy do? He goes and sits in town square in the middle, and he's just sitting there going like, man, these guys really left God. They, they don't love God anymore. They don't even love their neighbors themselves anymore. Like This is a culture that's truly gone downhill. Meanwhile, an old man comes in, and an older man comes in from the fields, and um, is from plowing, he sees this guy sitting here, and he's like, hey, why don't you come into my house for the evening? Let's peace be to you. Like, like, why don't you come and stay with me? If no one else will take you, I will. We think, wow, what a happy ending. But here's where literally, like, excuse the expression, but all hell breaks loose. If you haven't read the story, I'm not going to go verse by verse because there's kids that are in grade four in the room, and I would never take my kids to a movie that showed this kind of thing. Get the picture of what's going on here, and I wouldn't even go to the movie myself. This is like an R-rated section of the Bible. Just so you think, I'm, those of you think, well, the pastor's afraid to deal with it. I'm not afraid to deal with it. I'm just being sensitive to those in the audience. You want, you want me to deal with it? Just come and talk to me after, and I'll deal with it straight up. But literally, like, we see a picture of like every ounce of moral rightness was absolutely void in the tribe of Benjamin in the city of Gibeah and things were happening that were absolutely disgusting and appalling and it's even hard to reconcile that it's in the word of God. The first time I read it this week, I was like, oh my goodness. It felt a little bit sick to my stomach. It's appalling what was going on. Remember the Bible records what actually happened not what should have happened or what was God's plan. As you read this passage to your, not to your kids, but to yourselves this afternoon, 
you'll see that Israel is taking things to the outer limits of depravity. It's Sodom and Gomorrah stuff times 10 times 100. It's gut-wrenching. Here's some words I came up with to describe chapter 19. It's heinous. It's savage. It's vile, moral barbarianism. I don't know how strong to say it, but even those words don't seem to capture the fullness of it. It's wicked. So much so that chapter 19 ends with the Levite, the priest, sending out a memo, I'll say, to the rest of Israel to show them what happened. And obviously his memo hit every headlines in the major newspapers in Israel because a little resurgence rises up. And then at the end of chapter 19, it says this, and, and all who saw it said, all who learned of this said this, such a thing has never happened or been seen from the day that the people of Israel came up out of the land of Egypt until this day. Consider it. Think about it. Take counsel. Get some advice and speak, is what they're saying to the people. Intense. It's really a picture of what happens when you totally leave God behind. This is where the human nature will take us to the absolute bottom of the pit of moral depravity. To a place where nothing is wrong and everything's right. To a place where the good is bad and the bad is good. To a place where moral restraints are ripped off, just like Samson did with his ropes a few chapters before. It's absolutely shocking, to be honest. You know what's honest? You know what's more shocking to me as I read this? They're like, how low can we go? It's really no different than our culture today. In fact, something similar to this happened in our headlines in Canada, the, the place of truth and peace and love. We just, no, it's not truth, it's a place of peace and love. It happened in Canada, and you're like, man, if, if this is God's picture of moral devastation, then Israel is number one, then Canada right now is neck and neck for that top spot of the lowest place. She causes us to take notice of what God says and what our world is happening around us. Let's go on. We're going to apply this all at the end. Chapter 19 is simply this, leave God out, debauchery overrides. Chapter 20, you can say these words, forget God, turmoil ensues. Forget God, turmoil will ensue. Notice this, in the time of Israel's worst, God steps in, this time not by sending a deliverer, this time but not by his audible, uh, not by his audible voice or by his, his clear hand. He actually stirs the rest of the nation to rise up against all of this evil. Notice, even as far from God as they were, still the rest of Israel knew that there was a sense of right and wrong. That's God's moral goodness to us and common grace to us, even if we don't believe in him. So this gets so bad, even the rest of Israel is like looking at themselves like, man, this is bad. Like, how low can we really go? And finally, like, enough is enough. We have to rise up against this. And so that's really chapter 20. Chapter 20 is really a civil war happening. Notice this. Remember, this is the promised land. This is where God led them to. This is what they had been hoping for for 40 years. And what? Where do they go from all of this evil and all this moral corruption? They go to a civil war. An uprising. A whole nation, it says here, assembled in verse 
20 verse 1, and that word assemble doesn't mean like a little normal church gathering. It's not like, oh, they assembled, they have a church, a church meeting. No, that means they were gathering together as people gathered together for war, for a religious purpose. And in this case, probably a little bit of both, more war than religious purpose. So they met with the Levite, again, summarizing for you. They hear his story, but he leaves some parts out of his story, trying to make himself look better than he really is. You notice that in the text. Again, everyone's covering for their own selves, doing what's right in their own eyes. And finally, in verses 12 to 14, they're like, okay, like, enough. At 13, it says, no, no, this can't happen. What's going on the tribe of Benjamin? This evil has taken place. Now give us the men. Give us the men. Give us these worthless men who have done this. Finally, a sense they're going to do what's right before the Lord, but Benjamin, the tribe of Benjamin, is like any parent, really, honestly, whose kid does something wrong, they come to the defense of their kid. Even though I know it's wrong, we're going to stand by our brothers in Gibeon, and if you're going to fight, you're going to fight us. So here's what's happening. Battle lines are being drawn. One tribe against 11, the kingdom of God is being divided. Benjamin and the Gibeonites are part of the tribe of Benjamin on one side, all of Israel on the other side, 11 tribes versus one. It says in the text, there's 26,000 Benjamites joined by 700 left-handed Gibeonites against a troop, thousands of Israel, of the 11, other 11 tribes, 100,000. So what's the significance of the left-handed, left-handed warriors? You've got to note these things. When it, the Bible clearly says something and points out a trait, you have to take notice of it. Well, Benjamin means the son of the right hand. It means favored one. And remember, Jacob, his favorite was Benjamin, his youngest. And so it's the, the kind of the favorite. And so this is even the favorite tribe, the, the favorite tribe, like going backwards, the left-handers, possibly being like the, 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 the com- contrasting the right, the favor versus the wrong, the left. Remember, the right hand is where God is. The left hand is, the right hand, God puts people on the right hand is fa- who's favored to him. Left hand is where those who are maybe not as in favor with God or the opposite of God or out of favor with God. Joining forces. Israelites then come to the point of like, man, we better inquire of God. I haven't seen this really at all in Judges. Better inquire of God, but notice they don't inquire the right things of God. They don't repent. They don't God ask God if they should fight Benjamin. They just say, who should, we go, who should go first, God? God, here's their prayer. Here's their answer. Not what he's looking for in the question. He just says, okay, here's what you do. and Send the tribe of the first tribe. The first tribe goes, they get demolished. 18,000 go down that first day. Second day, another tribe goes, and they get demolished, 22,000. Now we're like playing field, 40,000 down, and and now things are getting, now, now, now Israel finally says, okay, we get it, God. God just allowed them to do their own thing to get them to the point where they truly seek God. Now we get it, God. They truly inquire of the Lord. They truly start weeping and repenting and all the things that are synonymous with revival, and they start seeing that, man, we are hopeless without God. God watched their offerings and he heard their cries and in the midst of all the tears and all the screams, God says, okay, boys, get up. Go one more time. This time, you're going to win. So Israel comes up with a plan. They send a few sacrificial lambs out front to meet the, the, the army from Gibeah and Benjamin. Uh, they have a bunch of other, other troops hiding around behind the sides, you know, 10,000 troops behind this little group of pawns to make it seem like they're going to fight a re- real battle. And so Benjamin comes up, and they start taking out all the, the, the opposition like before. They think, hey, man, they got all cocky. We're winning. They start chasing. The other, the other 10,000 start running. 
yelling like, we're defeated, we're defeated. It's all a plan, right? Benjamin starts chasing them. All the other warriors come down and take over the city and burn it to the ground. All of a sudden they see smoke coming, which was supposed to be the sign that now is the time to turn around and, and pile up on the opposition. The Benjamites turn around like, man, we've been had. Big battle ensues. Ultimately, Israel comes out victorious, except for 600 Benjamites who escape into the rocks, into the hills, where they're going to live for the next four months. Crazy stuff this Bible is, isn't it? Like, I'm not expecting these stories if I'm just reading it for the first time. Even for like the 20th time, they're still shocking some of these stories. The disregard for human life, the murder, the lying, the trickery, the arrogance, it's all here. Is this the Bible? Sounds more like a blockbuster from yesterday or the New York Times bestseller. Pretty sure this is not what God had planned for Israel. It's not what God has planned for our lives. Remember this. It's just a picture of how far humankind truly gets when we leave God out of the question. Here's the reality of chapter 20. Turn from God, expect turmoil. There's nothing but turmoil in the promised land at this point. Turn from God, expect turmoil. Turn from God in your own life. You can expect some of these things in your own life too. You can expect turmoil. You can expect things to get out of control in your own life. Good news is coming soon. Chapter 21, again, summary of that. Write this down. Without God, anarchy rules. Without God, anarchy rules. So these 600 Benjamites, they're out in the countryside. They're obviously pretty good fighters. They're also amazing survivors. They're out there. The rest of the nation comes up to a place called Mizpah, which is a translated watchtower. They come up to this place, and they're like, okay, now, like, what are we going to do as a nation? We, we, we've got to do something about this. They make a binding agreement or an oath with God that, hey, we're not going to give any of our wives or women to the Benjamites to marry. And so an oath back then was not just a little pinky swear. It was like a binding agreement with God. Now, they are bound to this. They also take notice that, man, we need to be together for the right things. And they're doing sacrifices, burnt offerings. They're really getting it right. For the first time in a long time, the, the smell of a truly heartfelt sacrifice is reaching the nostrils of God. And they start deciding, man, we, we got to do this right. we we got to go with God and before God. And Notice this, T for G, together for the gospel. In the Old Testament, even before this little organization we decided today. So they come up and they say, you know what? Like anyone who wasn't with us, he wasn't with us at the altar. Like, we need to take those guys out too. We need to purge the evil within us. Notice, they're finally getting it straight. Instead of worrying about whoever the evil on the outside, they're finally starting to get it straight. We need to purge the evil from within us first. Good lesson for us, isn't it? All of us finger pointers like to point out everyone else's stuff. Forgetting the first step is purging the evil within us. And so they say, anyway, anyone not here at Mizpah with us? Any tribe not here? Yeah, uh, Jabad Gileash is not here. Jabesh Gilead's not here. And so they decide they're going to wipe those guys out. And again, notice the ruthlessness of it. Notice the ruthlessness of it. They take them all out. Like, do they really need to do that? Seemingly of God, but they're just, their hearts are so far from God. They're just evil everywhere. Key verse, verse 15 in this, they finally realize this. The people of Benjamin Mustled out of their cities on that day, 26,000 men who drew the sword besides the inhabitants of Gibeah. Oh, sorry, that's 20, verse 20, chapter 
chapter 21, sorry, verse 15. The people had compassion on Benjamin because the Lord had made a breach in the tribes of Israel. They finally realized that God allowed this breach to happen so they would turn their eyes back to him. And so they realized, well, man, like Benjamin, like God allowed this. Now we have Benjamin, like there's, only, there's one last tribe in Israel. They start weeping again and, and crying. And how can we help Benjamin? We have already made an oath that we can't give them our wives and daughters. So they come up with another plan, which is backwards in our minds, but forwards in theirs. They tell the tribe of Benjamin, hey, why don't you go and wait in the vineyards and when the people come to worship in the, at the days of festivities, you can then, when the women start dancing in the street, just jump out and grab the women and take off. That way you can say that you didn't, we can say we didn't give you our women. That way you can say you didn't take them by battle and that was their plan. So that Benjamin wouldn't fall off the map in the history of Israel. Again, you're like, What? Couldn't you come up with a better plan than this? They couldn't. And that's how Judges ends. I guess there's a reason why pastors don't preach through Judges. It ends at verse 24 and 25. And the people of Israel departed from there at that time. Every man to his own tribe and family went out from there. Every man to his inheritance. In those days, notice this, there was no king in Israel. This is the whole key to the book. And everyone did what was right in whose own eyes? Their own eyes. This is messed up. The judges were broken and backwards. The people were so far gone they didn't know what was up and down. This is just plain messed up. And yet it's setting the stage here. It's setting the stage. Judges setting the stage for, for the nation of Israel to have a good king, a true king, yet a flawed king, notice, but a good king, King David, who would lead them into an everlasting covenant with himself. But they're also pointing us to something much more, someone much, more, much greater than David. They're pointing us to the true reality of Jesus Christ. Because just like Israel, so is humankind void of God. Spiritually destitute, morally bankrupt. It's a doctrine of human depravity. But we can do good, Pastor. Yes, we can do some good because of God's common grace to us. But the core reality of our nature is just like Israel. Israel is showing us us. And it's also showing us our true God. Israel's playing us. God's playing God still. But notice, even in the midst of all this, it's God who comes through his power, his goodness, and his love for his people he sticks with his people. I get to this point in the Bible and I'm like, God should just give up on them now. Wouldn't you? Here's the truth. God never gave up on his people Israel. Not because they were good. Because he is good. And God never also gives up on his people. No matter how far gone we are, God will also come, always come through for us through the one person, his son, Jesus Christ. This here is showing us a picture of the gospel unlike a picture we've really seen to this point in the scriptures. This is showing us how God rescues us from our own depravity in such a remarkable way. God sent his son Jesus to, to show us the true way to live, to save us from finding ourselves in this morally bankrupt position and to provide for us an avenue to have a relationship with God and ultimately an avenue to heaven and glory with him. 
All this book points us to fully is Jesus Christ. From start to finish, this book points us to our ultimate Savior, Jesus Christ. Do you get that today? You are Israel, and God is God through Jesus Christ. We have our ultimate rescue. Amen? It's showing us what we're really like, apart from God. Showing us where our culture will go apart from God. I don't really like to hear it sometimes. We all want the pat on the back. You're so good. You're so good. You're so good. Reality is we're not in and of ourselves. Yet by God's grace, it highlights the glory of God for sure. As I said last week, sometimes in the Bible there's examples that we're to follow and other times there's examples of exactly what not to do. Last five chapters is what we ought not to do. It's really the exact opposite of what God would have us to do and and really it's reminding us very clearly here that God's path is always my best option. God's path is always the best option of, of kings. It's always the best option of, of, of the people in the country, of countries. It's always the best option of individual peoples. It's always the best option as believers. We can't afford to leave God out of our lives, bottom line. There's catastrophic results and colossal blessings at stake. This passage is showing us the catastrophic consequences of leaving God behind. Ultimately, it's showing us how desperately we need God. We need God. We need his ways from shipwrecking our lives. The the Bible points out for us many times uh, throughout scriptures that there's blessings and curses. Follow God, there's blessings. Choose not to follow God, there's curses. In the New Testament, in Matthew chapter seven, it tells us there's, there's two ways to live life. There's the narrow way and there's the wide way. Israel is taking the wide way throughout the whole book of Judges every single time. But there's a narrow way to live. There's a narrow way to live that leads to life and leads to God. It's just the harder way. It's just the path less traveled. It's the one that makes us the most uncomfortable, but it is the right way. And God's trying to remind us to live the right way so you don't have to find out the hard way. The hard way wasn't the right way. Here's the reality. We get to the bottom of the, 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 the mountain and we look up and we see this path, this little winding path at the side of the mountain. We're like, man, that's going to take effort. It's pretty steep. There's some, harrowing, there's some harrowing places along that path, although the scenery is supposed to be more beautiful along that path. And ultimately that path leads to the, to the, to the pinnacle of the mountain, the summit of the mountain where the city of God is and Jesus abides. The Bible tells us very clearly. And over here there's another path and it's so wide and it seems so promising and and it seems so self-satisfying and it seems so right. Everyone's doing that path and so that path seems right even though there's no steep incline. It doesn't seem to be going up the mountain at all but it seems wide and it's paved and everyone's doing it so so many people jump on that path only to find that path leads to a cliff by the time they realize it everybody, the, the parade just pushes them off the other side. You know what God gave us commandments in the Bible? To point us to the right path. And make no mistake, commandments are in the Old and the New Testament. For those who think the New Testament is just loving God. Old and New. Old, Ten Commandments. We know the Ten Commandments. But aren't they just to show us that we don't match up to God? Yes, they are. But they're also meant to show us how to live our lives. In a way that honors God and pleases God. 
In the New Testament, there's over a thousand specific commands, not suggestions, not some good pointers for your life, or some self-help measures. These are commands. These are ordinances of the Lord that he has given us to lead us on the path that he has designed for us. And like our GPS or our ways navigates us safely to our destination, avoiding all the traffic jams and accidents and even potholes along the way and all the construction, so the commands of God navigate us towards heaven in the most efficient way possible, and we serve ourselves well by following them. I'm amazed at how many even Christians try and talk their way around the commands of God. I know it says, but... Well, I don't follow this perfectly. Nobody does. So get out of my grill. Do you really think, pastor, that I should follow the commands of God? Just to clarify, yes, I do. Because God put that upon my life and your life that we would have the most efficient path to heaven. Here's what God says about his word in Psalm 119. God's word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. In other words, God's word is the only guide we have in this life. Proverbs 16.25 says, There's a way that seems right to man, but it leads to death. The Bible is to be taken seriously. The Lord is to be revered. His word is to be held high in our lives. We see what happens when it's not. Ruins a nation. Ruins individual lives. There's chaos. There's consequences. But on the flip side of the chaos and consequences, I think we've seen that so clearly in Judges. Let me focus for the last little bit of the sermon on the, the blessings and the benefits of pursuing God in the way he's designed us to pursue him. God blesses, you have to understand, God blesses my pursuit of his ways. God blesses my pursuit of his ways. Here's what Psalm 1, verses 1, 2, and 6 says. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers. But his delight is in the law of God. And on his law he meditates Day and night. Verse 6, for the Lord knows the way of the righteous. In other words, God sees the way. He's with them on the way. Not just knows. like He knows. He experiences with them the, the path of righteousness for the righteous. But the way of the wicked will perish. Not could or maybe would. It will perish. Stark reminder of the blessings of following Jesus and the consequences of not following Jesus. Let me just point out from the texts, and I didn't read some of this because of the R-rated content, but let me point out some of the texts and three ways here that I believe God is calling us, just again, examples from the text, the three main themes of the text, how God is calling us to pursue him and pursue his ways. Uh, Number one is this, is in human sexuality. The part that I bounced over for the sake of the kids. It's so clear. We learned this in Samson's life a few weeks ago. It's so clear that one of the biggest detriments to the people of God was their pursuit of sexual promiscuity. And they lived for themselves. They lived for their own desires, their own impulses, their own passions. We saw how it took Samson down so clearly. Clearly. 
This passage focuses on another aspect of human sexuality that is so often tried to be misinterpreted by people from the word of God, but God's word is clear on it, and it is this. And it's really talking about men desiring men and women desiring women. Let's talk about homosexuality. That's what's going down in chapter 19. And so be a miss as your shepherd to miss an important aspect of what the Bible is talking about because this is such a clear and obvious issue in our culture today. And we see Christians trying to somehow join the other side of this debate and trying to rewrite Scripture and what it really meant, what God intended to say when God was just clear in Scripture. Can I tell you this? Gently and lovingly as your pastor, that God was clear in Scripture when he wrote this book of what is right and what is morally wrong when it comes to our sexuality. I know it's not popular for me to say this anywhere, especially in a big group of people today, but the reality is, is that God showed us clearly that giving in to homosexual desires is completely backwards to his intention for our lives. And, some, and he said it clearly in both the Old and the New Testament. For those of you who've heard sermons that say, well, he didn't say it in the New Testament. In the New Testament, everything goes. No, he said it very clearly. The Bible is clear. Leviticus 18.22, Leviticus 20.13, Romans 1, Romans 1, 26 and 27, Jude verse 7, because there's only one chapter, 1 Timothy 1.10. God has laid out for us a better way than, our human, than following our own basic human inclinations and desires. And I say it truthfully, I say it gently, but I say it wholeheartedly that God makes it clear that homosexuality is a sin. And it's not a greater sin than other sins, like some of us want to make it. Well, that's the bottom of the pit. It's on the same equation as adultery. Let's be honest. It's on the same plane as sex before marriage. It's on the same plane as greed and lust and anger and pride. As I said in the sermon on Samson, there is something about sexual sin that seems to take it to the next level because it's not just against God, it's against Christ, of course, but it's against the Holy Spirit who, who, in whom we are a temple of the Holy Spirit. It's against the Holy Spirit as well. And so it's a real issue. That honestly, as believers, there's only one side to stand on, and it's God's side. Not arrogantly. Not angrily but firmly. If you look at the human sexuality thing as in not that, so it's not that. It's not what they did in Judges 19. It's, it's, it's not supposed to be that, but it's supposed to be this. Here's what it's supposed to be. We're supposed to be viewing our sexuality through God's lens. Not just, not just those with homosexual in inclinations, but also those with, with heterosexual inclinations. We're supposed to be, we're supposed to be looking at our, our sexuality through God's lens, not through our fleshly impulses. As believers, we believe that God has made a good way, a perfect way for us in following him. And so we believe it's better to abstain than to act on our every inclination. Let's be honest, let's be honest. Even the animals that God's created act on their every inclination, but human beings are different than that. We've been given morality, a right and a wrong. And so this might be a battle for some, maybe even some in here. I'm not naive enough to think no one in here has this battle. 
This might be a battle for some. I want to encourage you with this reality. There is a better way that God's designed for you. Just like there's a better way for us as, as married people in here than to go and sow our wild oats everywhere we want because it feels good in the soul. There's a better way for us to live. The way is this. It's simply this. It's true, simply true that Jesus is, as we sang this morning, he is better. His way is better than every human fleshly desire of my soul. He is the only one who truly satisfies the deepest longings of my soul that I try and find in acting out of my sexual desires. Jesus is better than that. He's, he's more fulfilling than those things. He's where our true joy comes from. He's where our meaning comes from and where our ultimate satisfaction comes from. Your ultimate satisfaction does not come from your, your living out your sexual desires. The world makes us want to think that. It makes us want to believe that. That's not where it comes from. Here's where it comes from. It comes from bowing before Jesus low and saying, God, I choose you over everything else. I believe that. And although the battle may rage on, here's a battle worth fighting all of us, no matter what sexual desire you fight. The battle is this, to keep yourselves under the authority of God, believing that he will honor and bless that, and that will be the more satisfying path than any other path you feel inclined to take. I want to say this too about this topic because it's so emotionally charged, and believers come across so wrong on this. Believers don't hate homosexuals. Amen? That was really quiet. You should have had an amen quicker than that. We're called to love our neighbors as ourselves. We're called to remember that we are just as morally bankrupt as anybody else on the planet apart from Jesus Christ. My sin will take me to the outer limits like anyone else apart from Jesus Christ. And so how do we respond? We respond by staying on the truth, for sure, but with love and grace, helping people see the true reality of what God has said and what God has designed for their lives. Offering them grace, offering them to come to Jesus as we've been come to Jesus. So much more I could say, but two more things I want to hit before we're done here. God blesses my pursuit of his ways, and he will bless your pursuit of sexuality in a God-honoring way. Here's what else God uh, blesses my pursuit of It's in his ways. It's this, it's human dignity. We're not to live out like the judges. I, I'm amazed and appalled at the Israelites. They, they're God's chosen people, yet they are murdering left, right, and center. They're ruthless. And they're, they're not just taking out the, the tribes. They're taking out men and women and young people. They're, they're, trading, they're, they're trading women like sex toys. They're, they're trading wives. They're just... Somehow they've lost the sense that human beings are dignified creatures of the Lord. And human beings, if you look at creation, have been almost like it's a one-up on the rest of creation. God created everything and said it was very good. When he came to human beings, he looked at human beings and stepped back and like, wow, that is very good. Male and female, he created them. And somehow, Israel got to see, got to the point of seeing human beings in this senseless, listless way. They treated each other like nothing, as disposable commodities, like a, a water bottle that's done that goes into the recycling bin, not honoring God. Our culture also has this, this, mindset, this mindset that life just happens with no rhyme or reason, and, and people are no, humans are no better than the plants or the animals. Like, no, no it's not true. We've been created differently than everything else. We've been created in the image of 
Genesis in our image. Well, why would God say our? Because the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, in our image, he's created us. In other words, we have the ability, unlike anything else in the universe, we have the ability to think and to feel emotions and to make decisions and to have relationships and to, have, and to be creative and to have a moral sense of right and wrong. We are different than any other creation of God's. We, we, are, we are, even in heaven, it says, going to be a little higher than the angels, believe it or not. And brothers and sisters, we, we have to treat each other like that is true. Consider Adam and Eve. Consider Adam and Eve. How, how precious are people to God? How did Adam and Eve come to being? God formed them with his own hands and he breathed their life, in his life into their own nostrils with his own breath. And from conception, and we know how conception works. We've been to school before, but here's what conception really is. It's, it's a miracle of God breathing his life into a human being. I get it, your parents had a part in it, but it's a miracle of God breathing his life into a human being from the moment of conception. Every single child. Doesn't matter where they're born. It doesn't matter what nationality they have. It doesn't matter their education level. It doesn't matter what they look like. It doesn't matter their abilities. We seem to categorize people. Everybody is a gift. Every life is a gift of the Lord. And God calls us as his people to treat everybody as such. Think about it. Our culture, abortion. There's one place to stand on abortion, brothers and sisters. It's on God's side. Euthanasia. You're too old to give to society anymore. Or you're too crippled. Or you got too many special needs. God clearly said in his word, again, both Old and New Testament, thou shalt not what? Murder. It's in fact, one of the Ten Commandments is in, in Genesis 9, verses 5 and 6 as well. New Testament's in 1 John 3, and I know the question is then, the question is, comes to us, well, God says not to murder, we're supposed to treat every life as dignified, then why does God allow murder? Let me explain that to you. And, and why does God even seem to command murder in the Scriptures? I think God allows murder in the Scriptures because of the reality of our own human hearts, and sometimes he lets us go to the nth degree to get our attention again, like he did in this passage. Why does God seem to command it? I am still wrestling with that in my own heart, but there's clearly, there's clearly indications in the Old Testament that God has simply commanded war to happen and go take out. I come to this conclusion. God is creator of all things. God is holy. He is right and he is just. He is the giver of life. And get this, and the only one in the universe that has been given the, the, the privilege of taking life. And so when we see those things happen in the Old Testament, we have to trust this, that God is doing what is just and what is right and what he rightfully has been given the obligation to do. It puts God up here and me down here. It doesn't mean you don't wrestle with these things. I still wrestle with these things. But the conclusion we come to is that God gives, God takes away, because he is God. 
In fact, in the New Testament, this whole idea of not murdering is taken to the next degree by Jesus. Jesus says in the Old Testament, you see, do not murder. Again, it's repeated in the New Testament, but here's another one. How about don't even hate your brother? That's the real intent of God's desire. When God said do not murder, he was, he, uh, the overflow of his heart on that was that we wouldn't even hate anyone. Hate was a crime before hate was a crime. Do you know what I mean? Hate was a crime to God before hate crime became a crime in our country. So those of you sitting on your, like, your righteous stools right now going like, oh yeah, I got this one. Look, I'd never murder. Like, like, God says the intention of that command was that we wouldn't even hate anyone in our own hearts. This mentality like, oh man, my life would be better without. Equivalent to murder in God's eyes. Or the one person in the world I wish something bad would happen to, I wish it would be. God's eyes? It's good as murder. God has a better way for us. God has a better way for us than, than hate and bitterness and, and, and murder. God's way is this. You know it. You know it. But I got to say it. God's way is this. It's loving others. With the love that God has loved us, with the love that he puts inside of us, a supernatural love. Romans chapter 13, verse 10 says, God just doesn't say don't murder. He says this. When you love, when you truly love your neighbor as yourself, you fulfill all the commands. True love is this, John 15, 13. Not that you take somebody's life, but you lay down your life for somebody else. Bottom line is, Christians, we're called to love. We're not called to act like the Israelites. They're a horrible example for us. We're called to be the exact opposite of what these people are. We're called to love each other and love everybody. When those, when those feelings of maybe hate or dislike, I know Christians say it's not hate, it's just a very, very strong dislike. I've heard that so many times, like baloney. Christian way to wiggle your way around all the commands, right? When those things happen, we're to, we're to humble ourselves and, and ask God for forgiveness of those things and say, God, change my heart towards that person. I might show them love. And I, I challenge you this, brothers and sisters, you want to live opposite the Israelites, you want to live in a way of blessing? How about this week, you go out and try and find three things you can do for the person you like the least. Make sure you love them. How about you do this? One person that you did not want to see this week, how about you make a point of calling them and spending time with them so you can know their positive side as well as their negative side because everyone has a positive side too. And focus on the positives, not the negatives. Then you'll start living like Jesus. Then you'll start walking in a way that God will bless. Easy to love everyone you're friends with. Hard to love the people who are unlovable. I love the example of Corey Ten Boom in this who went through uh, terrible things at, at, in the genocide of the Jews and one of her stories goes back after many years after it happened in America, she's in the back of a church, and one guy that got to stand up to speak was a guy that she recognized as a German SS from, from her Holocaust days. Sitting in the back row, immediately her, her heart started welling up with anger, with, with hatred, and, and all the vile things that, that she would like to do to this man as she saw many of her family like going through many hardships and even die. And as the story goes in the back row, she sat there and she said, God, this is not your way. And she said, God... Help me love this man. And by the end of the sermon, she could walk up and give this man a hug with tears streaming down her face. This is, this is a supernatural kind of love that God is asking us to follow, not hate. Here's the last one, quickly. It's family unity. All this idea of wars and rumors of wars, I assure you of this, civil war was not what God intended for his people in the promised land. 
Internal strife is never a part of God's plan. I left this one to last because I think it's the, the most common one that we, we struggle with on an everyday basis. And yet what's God's heart for his people, whether it's your, your, your homes or the church or the community, what's God's heart for his people? Same thing our, us, our hearts as parents are. When we, when we get with our families, what do we want more than anything else? We just want to have peace and harmony in the home, right? You know the long trip, just keep your hands to yourself. You got a seat, sit in it. Pretend there's little barriers up the sides and over the top. You can't stay in your space and just get along. That's what God has for his people as well. We can easily skip over that part of the context of this passage, get into the bigger issues. Yet this is one of the bigger issues we're going to face in the church, getting along. God did not bring us into his family now to have all this internal strife in his family. I don't think we have it in our church now. It's a good reminder for us that, that all those things that tend to stir us up that don't mean anything, just let's put them down now so we don't have the internal strife that leads to civil war. Civil war doesn't happen in countries. It happens in churches. It happens in homes too. Why, does, why, do, these, why do these unity things happen? Because really we get focused on ourselves. Israel's in survival mode. We get focused on survival mode and we think that I'm the only one that counts now and my way is the best way, the only way, the right way. Everyone should do it my way. If they don't do it my way, then there's a problem. You know what God says in, in Proverbs chapter eight, verse, or sorry, six, verse 19? You know what God says? God says there's six things he hates, seven things he abhors. You know what one of them is? Is those who cause disunity in the family of God. On the flip side of that, God tells in Philippians chapter 2, he tells in Philippians chapter 2 that, that God loves it when we have one mind and one heart in Jesus Christ, and we live in one accord uh, together. Romans chapter 12, verse 18 says, Do your best to live at peace with all, walk humbly before God at all times. We live like Israel, that's going to happen inside of our church, inside of our homes. We choose, we choose a different way, a better way, than, than we, we've been, we can be blessed by God. And it's not even that hard. It's choosing to be gracious when you're right. It's setting aside your rights for the benefit of others. It's deciding it's okay to even be wrong once in a while. Unity isn't that hard. You know what unity is? It's he before me and we before me. Here's the proper order of unity. He, we, and me. Put that on the wall of your home. He, we, and me. This is what God has designed us to be. This is the path of blessing that God has set us upon. We have a choice. Do we choose the way of consequence or the way of blessing? I'm baffled, honestly, to how Judges ends. It doesn't really end with any hope. It doesn't really end with any promise. It just sort of ends, leaving us with this moral, spiritual, political crossroads. Which way are you going to follow? You're going to follow God's way? You're going to follow man's way? You're going to follow your way? I love how the rest of the Bible points us to a hope that is beyond even the situations we find ourselves in today. The, the Bible points us to this as the ultimate hope. It points us to that God prom promises a better life that is to come. End of Judges, it just seems like it's just kind of left in oblivion, like what's going to happen? Our lives, he promises that when you put your hope in Jesus Christ, there's a better life to come. 
Yes, you can live the fullness of what God wanted here in this life, but this life isn't all there is to it. The longer you live in this life, you'll realize that, man, life is full of hardships. There is sin everywhere, including in me, and we can't seem to escape it. And it seems like, it seems like we're just inevitably on the road, uh, the same road that Israel was on, but yet that is not the case through Jesus Christ. God promises us that this doesn't have to be our reality forever, this sin-cursed, broken forsaken world, the reality is there's a better day coming in glory where Jesus is going to be. We put our hope in Jesus. One day we can be delivered from all of these things, all of our inclinations, all of everybody else's sin. We can be in a place of wholeness. We can be a place of, of unity. We can be a place where Jesus is, where all of his promises will finally be completely yes in Jesus Christ. Hebrews chapter 11 tells us even the heroes of the faith didn't get all that was promised here on this earth. God waited until together with him he could make them complete because that's the better place to be. So as believers, we set our hope not on this world, not in ourselves, but on Jesus Christ, the only one that can deliver us from sin, the power of sin, the only one that can deliver us into eternal glory forever where there is the utopia that every human heart longs for. The eternal vacation, the retirement home that none of us will get tired of. Eternity with our King. All of Judges pointing us to this. I just want to be with Jesus forever. I just want to live my life that I can be with Jesus forever and ever and ever. Amen. Let me pray. Wow, God, thank you for your word, which is loud, it's clear. It's powerful. It's life-changing. Thank you for Jesus, who's real, alive, on the throne, working still in our lives, in our culture. Thank you for the Holy Spirit, which abides in us as believers, empowering us to live out the calling you've placed upon our lives. Thank you for the supernatural strength to live opposite of what the Israelites lived. God, may you find us in that place even today, living as you designed, as you desire, in honor of you as our Lord and King. God, forgive us where we fall short. May we again come repentant in faith to the throne of grace. And may we find Jesus to give us all that we need for the day ahead and the week ahead. Oh God, help us as a church be set apart from the rest of the world. Help us as a church to not follow the path of Israel. Help us as a church to to put Jesus high first and foremost and prominent and preeminent in our lives. Help us see the glory of our God in such a great way that we'll never want to turn back. Oh God, would you sink this message deep into every heart this morning? For those struggling with sin, maybe it is homosexual desires. Father, I pray that they would see that Jesus, you are the better way. For those that are filled with hate today and bitterness and anger, would they see Jesus and know that you're the better way, the way of love? For those, Lord, that are living in turmoil and civil wars in their homes, maybe battling even their own passions and desires and seeing all the ramifications of that in their hearts, God, may they look to Jesus and put their hope and trust in you. For all of us, God, let us live our lives today knowing there's a better day. It's coming. You're coming, Jesus. It's for real because you're for real, God. 
May we set our hope in eternity, not in this world. Ultimately, God, I pray through judges you'd help us simply behold our God and hold tight to our Savior. Amen.